Hello and welcome to The Personhood Project. I'm your host, Aaron Tyler Hand. In this podcast, we explore poetry's ability to help process trauma, spur personal growth, and reduce recidivism in the carceral system. If these topics are of interest to you, we ask that you follow us on Twitter and subscribe wherever you are currently listening. Today, I'm so delighted to be joined by poet Rosebud Bidoni. She's author of several poetry collections, which most recently include the 2020 chapbook, 20 Atomic Sonnets from Black Warrior Review, and the 2021 full-length collection, If This Is the Age We End Discovery, from Alice James Books, which was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award. Thank you so much for joining me today, Rosebud. Thank you. I really appreciate you sitting down with me and having this conversation and sharing your poems with the people in our classroom. I'm very, very happy to be here. I just want to start off by congratulating you on winning a 2023 Cafe Royale Cultural Foundation grant, which will allow you to turn your 20 Atomic Sonnets chapbook into a full-length collection. So I'd love to start off by having you tell the listeners about the chapbook and then what can be expected from the full-length. In 2019, the periodic table celebrated its 150th birthday. And I was really excited. And I thought it was going to be a lot of pomp and circumstance and, you know, sonnet, not sonnet, but atomic parties. And there was like nothing. (laughs) So I decided to write poems about certain elements on the periodic table. And one thing as a poet that I never want to do is someone to look at a poem and say that is definitely a Rosebud Benoni poem. Oh, nice. Someone had just said to me, Oh, I love that you take up all this space and that you only, and remember this person said only, that I only write long poems. And I was like, okay, I'm definitely not going to do that for this next project. (laughs) And so quite honestly, I just liked the way Atomic Sonnet sounded. And that's why I chose the poetic form. But another reason why I chose the sonnet is that at the last two lines, there's a turn, Mm -hmm. right? I decided, therefore, to write a few sonnets about the periodic table. And then Black Warrior Review, which I sent the poems to, said, hey, do you have more of these? We'd love to do like a chapbook. And I said, oh, I can do 20 because 20 just seems like a nice number to me, thinking that there's no way they would say yes. And they said, yeah. And they said, you know, if you do a chapbook, we'll also give you more money. And so then I was like, oh, now I'm really going to do it. <laughs> so it came out and it confounded and delighted equal amounts of people. Like some people came at me saying, oh, this isn't a traditional sonnet. And I said, yes, I never want to be bound by a tradition. I like to push boundaries. I like to just, in essence, write something just close enough to a sonnet so it still resembles a sonnet, while some are very straightforward sonnets. Some of the atomic sonnets take on personas like music, mm-hmm. like the 90s band Nirvana, or some of them really are just strictly about like hydrogen. And it was such a success. So then I thought, oh, you know, I, I, I like money. <laughs> I'm just I'm a very honest person. I'm an army of one, so I need, I, my family depends on me, so I need, I need to make money. Yeah, totally. So I saw this grant and I thought, oh, you know, I'm just going to ask for the full amount and I'm just going to tell them I'm going to take on the entire periodic table. So they said, yes, we're going to give you the money. And then I thought to myself, well, I'm really not happy with the periodic table. So I'm also in the process of creating new elements and new elementary particles. I will give you just a little preview. I'm, I'm doing one. I'm doing one for Steph Curry because Steph, <laughs> even though 
We are very different. Um, Steph also is of smaller stature. We'll say metaphorically, I'm literally, I am very small person myself. And Steph completely redefined what basketball is. And this is coming from a San Antonio Spurs fan. Mm -hmm. I was all about Tim Duncan, (laughs) but yeah. And especially before David Robinson retired, the Twin Towers, right? Those two are, you know, I was a wee one, but I was nuts about it. Oh yes, 90s Tim Duncan was the best. I can't say any more right now because it's it's not out yet, but I made a Steph Curry particle because I adore Steph Curry. I adore that he cares about mm-hmm. his community. I adore how hard he works mm-hmm. at his game. And I love that he has a sense of humor. I feel Steph Curry is also impish like myself. Yeah, so that's that's what I like to do. I like to... You know, I like to create things that challenge what people think things should be or are as part of just a subconscious element of of craft, even though I don't I don't really consider myself a craft poet. I really don't think about what I do. I don't have like a set ritual. (laughs) You know, I learned a lot about poetry on my own. I have an MFA, but I ended up taking a lot of science and (laughs) politics classes uh, Mm -hmm. because, again, I'm impish. So. I I sort of uh, would say I'm a self-learned poet for a lot of my so-called education. I just want to start off with just the idea of you starting with, there's what, 118 elements? And you said, no, that's not enough. We need more (laughs) going into writing the full length. Well, what's so incredible, the Oppenheimer piece came out. And and Mm -hmm. I don't have an issue with Oppenheimer, the film. But Mm -hmm. there's so many more influential people in chemistry. Enrico Fermi, for instance, and I, I won't get into that, but... The, the thing of it is, is when you really get to what, what is called the super heavies, I would say anything past, um, even though it's up for debate, I would say anything past plutonium. The elements are just so unstable. Some of them have actually never even been seen. Oh, wow. When you get past the hundreds, for sure, they're so heavy. They break down into other smaller elements because they're just too many protons. It's just too heavy. Mm-hmm. I find it so fascinating that some of these have no uses, but for the simple fact that these chemists for the sheer sake of discovery that they've made this their passion. And, you know, I would say probably there's 150 elements total. And I would also say that a lot of them have never existed before. As far as we know, in the known universe, a lot of the super heavies and I would say anything past 90 and I'm just ballparking here Mm -hmm. only exist on earth. They're not found in nature. And to me, that's really fascinating I remember I was doing this project with a biologist and I definitely feel very strongly about physics. I believe that, well, not that I believe it's true. Without chemistry, there's no biology. Without physics, there's no chemistry or biology. Mm -hmm. So I was fascinated and I was talking about hydrogen and I was going on about how you would be ashes before you even see the blaze. And I put that in my, one of my sonnets about hydrogen that hydrogen is just so powerful, you would just be complete, you'd be completely gone before it even blew up. And the biologist reminded me, he's like, yes, Rosebud, I get you're a fiery person. But (laughs) you also have to remember hydrogen wants to bond with everything. Mm -hmm. And that completely changed my person, not just the way I look at writing, but that to remember that you know, that there is this human responsibility, especially when we're talking about things like the atomic uh, tragedy um, in Japan, that there's a human element that's very, very important to remember when uh, a moral responsibility for discovery. 
And I, I think that this might be a generalization, but biologists are some of the kindest people I've ever met. That's not to knock physicists, but I'm just saying there's something about them that's very special in, in my point of view. First off, I just want to say I love your depth of knowledge and your interest in this. I love when outside forces of, you know, um, our everyday lives or outside forces of our other interests outside of poetry come in and have such an impactful movement on the way we write and what we write. And I love the idea of you kind of, you talked about the moral responsibility and this idea of kind of like bending our ideas and kind of, you mentioned earlier, even like with your writing, you like to break tradition. And I love this idea of you coming into writing with this similar idea of what these physicists are doing. And you're like, you're not being bound down by you know, poetry has to be one thing or me, Rosebud, poet needs to be one type of writer. I, I, you try to push the boundaries of what even you can be. So I was just hoping you could kind of talk a little bit about this idea of like sitting down to write a poem. And you mentioned, you know, not wanting to be bound by one idea of, you know, someone reading a one of your poems and not being able to obviously identify it was you. So do you kind of find yourself tweaking as you're writing to, you know, pull yourself out of it a little bit? Or do you kind of be like, oh, I did this thing before, so I want to try something different here? Like, kind of curious how you go about when you're sitting down to write or maybe in the revision process. So it, it's changed throughout my life. And I think one turning point for me was in 2012, which is now over 10 years ago, and I can't believe that. <laughs> um, I was visiting my relatives in the Rio Grande Valley, um, which is on the border of Texas and Mexico. I'm, I'm half Mexican on my mother's side. My mother converted from Catholicism to Judaism before I was born, and we were raised very observant. My brother and I were raised very observant Jews. However, uh, when we would go to my Aunt Nina's house or to, um, uh, we were very close to my Mexican side, you know, my father would say, you eat whatever she serves you. So if she serves something like menudo, we would eat it, even though it's not kosher. Mm -hmm. And it's because my father taught me to privilege love over tradition. And I also think he just wanted to eat my aunt's cooking because it is. Really <laughs> good. Um, but something that I think, so I'm very close to them and I was visiting them in 2012 because my mother's eldest brother, my uncle Bolani, who I am still, even though he's passed away, still very attached to, he was in the first symptoms of his own illness. He had uh, terrible cancer, but I was walking in his, uh, in his driveway with his big, big uh, pit bull. Suddenly I just lost my balance. It was really strange. It was like, my left side went out. That's mm. the best way I could describe. My left leg just went out. And I didn't think anything of it. And then I returned to New York. I live in Queens. And I was walking down, I was crossing rather, the Boulevard of Death, otherwise known as Queens Boulevard. There's this one area of Queens Boulevard where it's like 12 lanes. And somehow <laughs> it continues to multiply. It's not that big, but it's big. Okay. And the same thing happened. And I fell in the middle of this open boulevard mm -hmm. you know with these cars waiting to go and uh, this man um realized that i couldn't get up he got out of his car and he you know he put up his hand for everyone not to and you know people were honking but when they saw that he had to carry me you know they stopped and he got in the car and he took me to the hospital oh. so in 2012 i started to have the first symptoms of an autoimmune condition that affects my balance and my memory and things like that and the last book that I wrote, If This is the Age We End Discovery, is an exploration of that because mm. I've been homeless throughout my life. I grew up working class. I 
have, you know, I've always been uh, financially unsound, we'll say. Mm -hmm. And the thing of it is, is that I was always happy. And, you know, I would have people say to me, you're so intelligent, you know, uh, but, you know, you decided to go into writing. Like, you know, this is how it started. <laughs> but I was happy. The moment, mm -hmm. though, my health got threatened, it got taken away from me, that I was told what you have, there's no cure. And it's, it, they don't know, everybody's progression is different. And I was terrified. So at, at that year, and we'll say like 2013, I turned to my father and I turned to him because I said, I'm having a lot of problems with finding stability. You know, I was always this carefree person and now I, I have to face like this terrible thing and I'm having trouble talking to Hashem, which is God. Um, I'm a very secular looking person with the way I dress, but I, I'm very deeply bound to um, certain parts of Judaism. And my father, I found out, was also having issues with Judaism. So therefore, my the book sort of deals with the breaking away of frameworks. Mm -hmm. So you asked me about revision, and this mm -hmm. is where I'm getting to this. Usually in the past, pre-2012, when I was younger, I revised very heavily all my work. And even though I'm not happy about having, obviously, this disability, or being chronically ill. Now my poems by and large come out in one go. I hear wow. this music and it's like, there's a, a poem uh, that's gonna be in my next collection. I, I hear this music, something says to me, consider this a death and listen. And so I wrote a poem from that and um, it's coming out in the next book. I just hear the music and then the poems just start to come out on the page. But I will say to all the, poets listening and writers listening realize like every project is going to be different. Some of it is going to be a revision and some of it is going to come out in one go. You know, mm -hmm. it's not whether or not a poem is, is successful. That's for others to decide, but you have to be right with you. And I think that's really important. And I would say, you know, I, I was very fortunate. Critics loved my last book, but one thing that really I had to, not correct, but I had to address is one critic um, said he was so happy that he was glad to see somebody's writing real poetry, serious poetry, um, and that a lot of what comes out is just these days from uh, poets in the United States is tween poetry. And I immediately took issue with that because I said, listen, you make me want to write now nothing but impish poems because <laughs> you can't say that um, poetry mm -hmm. is the one genre which I think is not taken seriously by anyone. Yeah, uh, you know we're sort of at the bottom of the barrel, uh, and mm -hmm. therefore um, it's in its nature that every time you say a, po a poem shouldn't do this or it shouldn't do that or a poet's growth should go from childish to serious, I, I think that that's not what poetry does at all. I don't think it follows a linear pattern of growth. And I don't think people do either. That's my own. I mean, people do grow, but it doesn't have to be linear. That's a lot. I, <laughs> that's just sort of how my brain works. I apologize if this is hard to follow. <laughs> no, that was, yeah, it was super easy to follow. Thank you for laying that all out. I mean, I appreciated hearing the backstory and you kind of sharing a little bit about your illness and how that kind of affected your writing. And it's interesting to me, again, like how our everyday lives come into our writing and not even just writing, but writing style. And I think about, you know, it's obviously not the same, but people in inside of our classrooms, like in the jails, they have limited writing tools 
tools and writing paper. We try to, you know, we try to include notebooks in our classroom, but, you know, pending on what kind of sweeps or anything else that happens, like you just never know that, you know, the guards could come through and throw away things and they're left with like scraps to write on. So I always think about, you know, the Emily Dickens, like writing on the envelope and kind of like you have this amount of space and you're, you're only writing within what you have or like what's being offered to you and how you're outside. Everything else in the outside world is affecting how and why you write. And, you know, your story is so interesting. I definitely can see how people in our classrooms who hear this can relate to it in some way or another. Yeah, it's funny because I I did have a career trajectory, but I always tell, I do teach, I teach, you know, just part-time. And I always tell students I encounter that I do realize because people are always like, oh, you're really talented. But I was also really fortunate. I I got a break when I won the Alice James Award. And Mm -hmm. that's when I could start to make some money. I mean, I'm not a millionaire, but I'm I'm okay (laughs) now. The work never stops for me. But I get to do what I love. And I do think, you know, if I had gone to medical school, which my parents really wanted me to do, I would have been a great doctor. And I do feel a lot of guilt about that because cancer is just rampant in my mother's family. Because if I'm being candid, uh, it's, I think it's environmental. The border is very polluted for many reasons. But I had a friend who is a doctor say to me, she says, you know, you don't need to feel guilty. Yes, medicine can make us live longer and better, but we need something to live for. Mm-hmm. And your work is something to live for. And she actually had me in tears saying that. I do hope that because I actually do have a lot of friends who are um, or are just like a rather a lot of readers who are doctors and researchers and scientists reach out to me about the book. And that makes me very happy. So I hope in some way, like I am contributing to, you know, overall better quality of life for people, because that's, that's always been very important to me. No, I mean, I'm sure you are. And there's always this conversation, this kind of back and forth of poetry's good. We kind of saw it during the pandemic, like, or during, during the George Floyd protests, like people kind of taking a step back and is like, hey, is you know, me writing, actually doing anything worthwhile. And I definitely think, you know, obviously everyone has their own opinions, but I feel like it does. I feel like, you know, your writing is definitely, especially when people in your hometown or area, family read it and just kind of see, like you said, like writing for what's worthwhile in the world. That's what we can read it and like makes the living worth it to read these beautiful things you've said like even you just quoting your own poems now I've written down you know like these amazing lines that you've written and like underscored them like three times and as I'm taking notes here and it's just like these beautiful words these beautiful lines coming together and people just connecting to them is I think an important part of you know our keeping going as like a civilization or as people I do want to talk about also, I think it's kind of related, so I'll I'll try to tie it in. But in our preliminary interview, you said poetry will be and already is the language of the future as it requires the brain to work in different ways it's not accustomed to. And I'd kind of like to talk about poetry as this tool to help, you know, kind of change our brains, you know, obviously, maybe not physically, but also physically too, but definitely metaphorically and kind of how you perceive this ability or how you perceive it as a tool to allow change in the brain. You know, as someone whose own brain is impacted by illness, there's been times where I I use this example, I have illness where it flares up, that's what they call it. And I had a flare up. And what's so strange is I completely understood Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and quadratic equations. Mm -hmm. And I could write beautiful poems, but I didn't recognize door handles. Mm. That was part of my brain that was affected. I could see clearly what a doorknob is if it's circular, 
but I was giving a reading at a university and the door handle was a rectangle and it was very ornate. And I was standing outside and I started crying because I didn't know how to get in the building. And one of the um, people who had invited me, a professor, her son, saw me. He recognized me from that headshot on the poster. Mm-hmm. And without a word, because people who have known about the book know that I, I deal with this kind of stuff. And he opened the door for me. I, I was so embarrassed. And he was just such a little gentleman at the age of 10. And then it happened again outside, ironically, <laughs> a, a neurologist that I was going to see. It was also the same thing. The door handle was very strange and I couldn't figure it out. And I had to call them from the front office. I said, I don't know how to get it. So, you know, they, they let me in. And I think without poetry, I got to be honest with you. I don't think I'd be here for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. I think that poetry allows those and we all think differently. There's no such thing as perfect health and there's no such thing as the perfect mind. That's a myth. I learned that very quickly. But poetry allows us to communicate in different ways. And it might be really upsetting because it's very difficult to understand each other in everyday speech. Imagine Mm -hmm. how difficult it is to understand each other through our poems. But I think it's important because the challenge will only make you stronger when your brain has to work harder I also think it makes your body stronger. And I just remember when I was given my original prognosis, you know, they said, you'll probably eventually lose the ability to walk. And I'm still, I mean, I stumble a little um, and I have tremors, but I'm doing just fine. I live in New York, so I walk around all the time. Sometimes I have to be careful going down staircases. You know, I, maybe I just look a little prissy. (laughs) (laughs) But I, you know, poetry has, enabled me that when I find it challenging to move in real life, I can move however I want on the page. Mm -hmm. Sometimes my poems are all over the pages and that might be a subconscious representation of how I'm feeling. And so I think, you know, whether it's a math problem or a poem and you don't know what's going on in it, it's okay to get frustrated, say, close the book for a moment, you know, in frustration, but then go back to it and try to figure out what is this person saying? What there is a there, maybe there isn't an answer, like the answer, right? But maybe there's something of interest here to uncover. And I just think that when you're challenged, it can it can like set your whole day in a new way. You know, I didn't know anything about my illness when I first, you know, they first started telling me, we think this is what it is. And then I, I went on to WebMD, which you should never do. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely but not. But I, I started to really think about this and think, okay, well, you know, they're saying this, what are you going to do about it? You have to get up in the morning. You know, I have lovely family and friends, but they're not in my head. We're not in each other's head at the end of the day. You know, you have to figure out what you're going to do. You know, something else recently that happened that's been on my mind is that yesterday there was an FDA panel about this new drug, Neuron, to treat ALS. And Mm -hmm. I have a friend with ALS I watched her go from walking to walking with a cane to walking with a walker to being wheelchair bound within six months. Wow. And she's considered a slow progression. And the FDA yesterday heard a bunch of testimony from people with ALS who really need to try this drug because ALS has no cure and it's a terrible way to die. You basically just stop breathing. Uh, You suffocate. And they denied the drug. 
So I wrote to them, I used what little platform I have. People are like, well, you have a platform, so use it. Mm -hmm. And I wrote to them, I wrote to my representatives this morning, and I'm just not going to shut up about it. And I find that poetry has helped me that when I get overwhelmed in my own life, I say, well, what can you do for someone else? And I I do think the idea of poetry and communication and, and the ways that we have to reach each other are challenging. You know, that sort of slides over to my whatever little work I've done for ALS. Like, yes, I deeply care because it's a friend of mine. But, you know, as I was doing research into the progression for her, because she was so overwhelmed, I just could not believe what I was reading. So I think, you know, long story short, I think poetry can also really offer people hope where others in their specialties will tell you there is none. And I just told my friend this morning, I said, this isn't over. (laughs) Like the FDA does not know the power of social media. We're going to make this happen. So that's a whole other story. But again, if it wasn't for poetry, I don't think I would be so bold or brave. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, you talk about how poetry offers hope, but it also kind of sounds like poetry offers this idea of how to pivot or how to see other options when, you know, your main avenue gets blocked up. Like in the case of the the FDA, like they didn't pass it. So you're like, okay, I could, you know, just stop here because, you know, the main path is blocked, but no, I'm going to use my platform. I'm going to write to Congress. Like it kind of shows you like, Hey, you know, you're writing, you get to a point, you get stuck, but you know, taking a step back, you can see the different paths. You can kind of pivot and see what other options are there. It kind of helps like, you know, you're getting overwhelmed by something, but it allows you to step back and say like, okay, what else can I can, what else can I do? What, what can I control? Like someone else is out is um, deciding things outside of my control, but what can I as a person control? And I can definitely see how that would help in the outside world and, you know, not feeling like you're stuck all the time and just like allowing us to like mentally just step back and be like, Hey, I can do something. It might not be the way I wanted to go, but there's something for me to do. I definitely agree. And I think that there is a um, level of judgment sometimes where others will critique what kind of work others are doing. And I tend mm-hmm. to stay out of those. I tend to stay out of those arguments because I often think that, you know, we see people on social media and we assume all we assume we know everything about them. And, you know, I started writing about my illness, not because I wanted to tell people about it, but I was literally looking at the pattern of my own collapsing framework system, you Mm -hmm. know, as I was going through this. But I've had people say to me that I should do more because I look so well. And I've had people say this to me when I have like very visible tremors in my hand. And I just kind of look at them and I said, listen, I'm I shouldn't have to even tell you this, but you know, I'm divorced and I'm a one woman show. I mm-hmm. take care of myself and I try to, my best to take care of my family. So what, what are you saying to me? And then they always feel terrible and they always, I mean, they're basically telling me we don't see you as a three dimensional person. And so yeah. I think the other thing is if you read another person's poetry, you'll get to see them a bit more three dimensional. And I think that's mm-hmm. like really important that maybe they're not telling you every single detail of their lives, but they're telling you something. And I think poetry, you know, if more people just wrote it and more people read it, they would be kinder and gentler 
to one another. I come from a very unkind, ungentle place. It mystifies my family, especially my parents who are very hard people. They're very, very hard people. And, you know, my mother believed when I was younger that showing any affection would just lead to weakness, especially in a little girl. So she wasn't very affectionate with me. And people are just surprised when they meet my parents. They say, where did you come from? You're not like your parents or your brother. You're so, you're so, <laughs> so gentle. And I don't, this is just the way I am. It's just my nature. Mm-hmm. Even though I was raised in an environment that was uh, not, it was, it was especially unkind to little girls who were very smart. And I just can't change the way I am. And I, I do think it's because from a very young age, I was writing poetry, which again, just completely mystified my parents, they weren't unhappy. They were just like, where's this coming from? <laughs> I love when you said that reading poetry and writing poetry, I'll say reading poetry more allows you to kind of see the writer as a three-dimensional person. Because that's a lot about, or a lot of the reason why I kind of started this project and, you know, wanted to do this project because unfortunately so often people stuck in a carceral system are seen as so two-dimensional and they're so pigeonholed into, you know, these ideas of what someone who ends up in jail or prison is like, when in reality they're 3D. There's so much more to them and their backstory and about where they are and why they're there. And, And that's my hope is like by us sharing poems from someone locked up in the system hopefully we can see them more as just an inmate which is a word i hate using but that's something that's you know so often used to describe them and hopefully see them as you know the person that they are yeah absolutely i mean i have someone in my family who is incarcerated right now and i i have to uh keep it together for this interview he was sentenced very very young and he got 60 years and it was very difficult. I was, I was studying abroad at the time. Mm-hmm. I was in Jerusalem and it shattered my family. I remember that um, he nearly got the death penalty. And I remember my mother telling me that the prosecutor came in with, it was like a folder or something. It, it was marked very big, you know, it said death penalty or something, something to, to frighten him. And oh. she says she'll just never forget mm-hmm. the smirk the prosecutor had on his face looking at my uh, cousin and that stuck with me mm-hmm. for a very long time. What he viewed as in this prosecutor viewed as an inhumane act, he treated just as equally. Exactly. And I think that for me was a, was a turning mm-hmm. point and it, it's still very painful for me to talk about because the border is a very misunderstood place mm-hmm. I don't understand it and my family is still there Mm -hmm. and you know it just hasn't had the opportunities like further in San Antonio or like Houston or yeah well Dallas has always been Dallas but like (laughs) there's other areas that have just grown Mm -hmm. I've never quite understood why not the Rio Grande Valley you know and it's hard for me because my parents particularly my mother is very very proud to have a daughter in New York that's her pride Mm -hmm. And there's something about that at the same time, though, when I mentioned about moving back to the Valley, whether it was perhaps looking at a job at the University of Texas at Brownsville or or Harlingen or, you know, some of the places where we have family. She said, no, I I like that you're in New York. I like she likes to makes her proud. But, you know, it's very hard for me because as the years progress, I don't feel distant from my family in any way. We talk quite often. But, you know, Whether I want to 
accept it or not, like Queens, New York City is the first place I've ever felt home. Mm-hmm. I feel very at home here. I'm, you know, dating again and I'm dating someone who lives in Manhattan and they are just very upset with me <laughs> that I don't want to leave Queens. Mm-hmm. But I find contradictory feelings where I really miss my family, yeah. but I love Queens so much. It kind of mystifies again people who are say to me, but you know, you lived in Brooklyn for a while, you lived in Manhattan for a while, and I say, yeah, it's okay, you know. But Queens, Queens is where it's at, <laughs> and it sort of mystifies people if they don't if they don't have that same affection. But yeah, and I just I love my neighbors, and um, I just love everything about it. My partner is from Queens, like originally, and so I I hear so much about, you know, her waxing nostalgia about growing up there and living there and her, you know, growing up. And last time her family moved to um, Valley Stream, which is, you know, just outside of Queens, just on the border of Long Island. So, you know, when we visit her family, we go there. But the last time we went to visit her family, we actually got to go to Queens and she showed me, you know, this is where I grew up in this apartment. This is the apartment that my grandma lived in. And just kind of like, this is, I think it, ah, she's going to kill me. I think it's a five train. Like this is a five train that I rode and just like, yeah, I could see like how it is such a special place. But as someone, you know, who left where they moved out of myself, like I understand, like you miss the family, you miss what's there, you miss your connections to uh, my, me, my, mom my dad and you know everything else but i'm you know move now that i've moved away from them and i've been away from them over 10 years like i feel like i'm in my place now like i've found my place too and yeah my mom's similar to your mom where she's so happy that she has a place where she can come visit me and it gives her an excuse to you know go on vacation and things like that so yeah i totally understand that I'd love to take this time to transition to the second part of our podcast. For first-time listeners, the Personhood Project is more than just this podcast. It is a whole project where we take poems that uh, Rosebud wanted our people in our classrooms to read, and our classrooms are inside jails and prisons in Central Texas. So we take them there, and we teach how to write poems. We teach about all the different poetic techniques around the poet's poems. And then the poets in the classroom write poems inspired by their work. And when we bring them on here and Rosebud will read them. But before reading the poet's work, I would love to have you read your poem, The Songs We Know Not to Talk Over. That is so strange you chose that one because that's the one I have in the first window open. Oh, perfect. So I wrote this poem after my uncle Balani died. And the first part, it actually happened. I was in Toronto for my then husband's sister's wedding when I got the news that he had passed. And I was going to fly out immediately. And my mother said, stay for the wedding. We still have to prepare everything for the funeral. And then you can come to the funeral. There is this moment I was walking with my former mother-in-law, who I still will always love no matter what, and we saw this very strange insect. And when I turned around, well, you'll see in the poem. (laughs) The songs we know not to talk over. After a funeral, something rustles from the wind, flutters haphazardly close to your aching chest. Most likely it will fall to the cracked sidewalk. Stop walking. Consider it. You won't understand what you are looking at, this sort of green would-be Katie did with dragonfly wings and limbs like a praying mantis. It's incapable of anything, 
but beginning. It won't sense your grief for someone it has been. Walk away first. You won't see it again because now it's a bird. Not very scientific that I have seen this, not the transformation, but how often have I asked the sky what comes after death and then two birds pass over my head? I couldn't tell you why I awaken at times to a pecking at my eyes. I don't know why some birds return to haunt us. I have felt thin small talons dig into my wrist. We tangle in the darkness, forest is lowest. No trail of marigolds and copal incense. No falconers in the boot hills. Where we go, I feel still, but never remember. In the morning, a sparrow steals a half-eaten donut from a pack of feral cats, and I promise to spare the life of all that is winged. I watch where I step and still a wasp stings. I'm sorry. The only promises I've kept are those scientifically proven. I have no eye on infrared evidence, no delicate microphones to catch when I check the closets and drains during a thunderstorm when I've said sitting at a deathbed, it's going to be okay. I've told them not to pull the plug, even when my body says, when, bury me standing, bury me three times. No one really drops dead from seeing your gaunt, flinting shape in the mirror. Not mirror, but grace. Forgive me for covering my eyes, for cowering under the blanket, for swatting at you when I passed a flower garden, when I shut my windows and chased you from park benches and fruit trees. I didn't know there are people I'm not willing to ever let go. And I won't. I haven't. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for reading that. So when we take Rosebud's poem into the classroom, when we took this poem, we also take a writing prompt that the poets in the classroom can use to try to get inspired by the poem if they weren't already inspired by it. I'm going to read that writing prompt now. Rosebud's poem, The Songs We Know Not to Talk Over, explores themes of transformation, loss, and the mysterious connection between the living and the departed. While probing the emotions of grief, regret, and forgiveness, the poem reflects on questions surrounding life after death. The poem ends with a remorseful acknowledgement of missed opportunities and a determination to hold on to the memories of loved ones, never letting them go. Using the images of insects, birds, and the loss of loved ones, write a poem that speaks to someone no longer living. What things remind you of them? What do you wish you still could tell them? How do you keep the memory of them alive? For first-time listeners, you can find this writing prompt as well as the poems inspired by Rosebud on our website, roughdrafttx.org. Rosebud, would you want to read the first poem inspired by your work? It was called, But Wait. I have it open right here. And I have to say, these poems that you sent me from the poets are beautiful. <laughs> so I will start with, But Wait. January skies of ashen tomorrows suffocate me completely. I wrestle against the stronghold that tends to feed on me like a slave and brazen defiance 
Somberly, the songbird sings, a song resurrecting memories of you. Can the faith of a child stand the gap for a parent who never found the way? Silence again reminds me my fate slowly faded, emotionally jaded. But wait, Jesus saved me, the words I managed to pray. Well, something that I really loved in this poem is the but wait, Mm -hmm. because there seems to be a lot of wrestling against, which I'm very familiar with as a poet. Yes. And there seems to be a lot of wrestling against, right? These January skies, these ashes tomorrow, the suffocation, right? This Mm -hmm. stronghold, it's like a choking, right? And what I love is in the third terset, terset is a word I just, you know, I've only learned, you know, these poetic terms also in the last, you know, few years. Like I said, I'm very self-taught. But the terset uh, in Brazen Defiance, there's a a turn there, right? Defiance. Mm -hmm. Somberly, the songbird sings, right? A song resurrecting memories of you. It's not a perfect world. And in this perfect world, you still do have defiance. And then this question that is asked in the fourth stanza, can the faith of a child stand the gap for a parent who never found the way? Stand the gap. Yeah. Yeah. I sat with that when you sent me these. And I just had so many, a rush of feeling and images and emotion come to me. That is absolutely fantastic. And if the poem had ended there, it would have really had a strong meaning, but that's not where the poem needed to end for this poet, right? Mm -hmm. The silence again, there's silence again, right? Reality, the reality of these January skies, right? But wait, and you have that pause there. Jesus saved me the words I managed to pray. There's just so much beautiful candor I managed to pray. And I think it's really important. I'm also a poet of faith. And I love that turn because not only for its beautiful candor, but it is defiance. Mm -hmm. That is also defiance. I managed to pray, not giving up. So I I really personally loved this poem very much. Yeah. And just for readers who might not have the poems pulled up in front of them, as Rosebud mentioned, the poem is in tercets for the most part, which is like three line stanzas, except for the Yeah, the second to last stanza, which is in just a two line stanza, but the words but wait are kind of spaced off to the side of the second line. And it's like almost a play on, you know, a a three line stanza by having it so far off to the side that it's really impactful for that turn, that other turn. There's so many turns in here. And like, you know, we go from this, as you mentioned, kind of like choking feeling at the beginning to this embrace and defiance to where it's almost like a personal kind of stance against everything and then we get the other term that's like i'm only able to have this personal stance because of this jesus save me the words i managed to pray yeah just like it's like almost like an onion we're just getting so many different things revealed to us as we go through it which i i love about this poem i would also say the second to last stanza it's a seemingly couplet that actually is a terset there's Mm -hmm. defiance there Mm -hmm. there's hope but there's also that defiance there. And I think defiance can be hopeful. It can be, it obviously is positive, right? It's the getting up, like that couplet arises on its own feet as a terset on its own terms. Exactly. And as a, as a poet who loves to play with form, I see that very much here. And it's, 
again, it's so beautifully candid, but it's extremely clever. Yeah. And so, yeah, I loved this. I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. it's okay. Yeah. I, I was just going to say that earlier when you were talking about how, you know, you like to bend tradition and kind of like break rules. This is the exact moment I was thinking of. And I was like excited to talk about this point because it's like, that's exactly what they were doing here in this moment. Absolutely. We have a second poem here that was inspired by your work called For Hunter. Would you mind reading that one, please? Absolutely. This is another poem that uses tersets, except for the last line. And I would also say the second to first stanza sort of plays with it. Mm -hmm. So I'll try to read it as it sounds mm -hmm. for the line. Thank you. For Hunter. I hear you not only in my dreams, but all around me and in every thing I see. I'll never forget your words. I'm going to tell you how we will remain free. I didn't know that would be the last time I saw you. You were so upset as you walked away. Now that you're gone, I think about you all the time, and it's hard to keep my tears at bay. I hope I never forget your voice and all the love you gave me. I hope I never forget all that you've taught me. I love you, Ryan Hunter Smith. I appreciate the way you read it to kind of emphasize where those breaks were, because I think it really helps, you know, for people who aren't able to pull up the poem in front of them to hear where those breaks are. And because this poem has some really great line breaks. And so it's just worth like emphasizing where they are. One of the ones I'd like to point out is the one where it's in that second stanza, which is, it's a tercet, but it's also the free mm -hmm. is the last word on the last line on the third line right and mm -hmm. that's it but there's this line break that's quite brilliant i'm going to tell you how we will remain yes. right and i think about this idea of remaining mm -hmm. and how that can also again be this like act of defiance but how we will remain how we will persist how we will stay right but then free and the free gets all that space and i would say there's hope there but there's also an admitted loneliness there mm -hmm. free is lonely without the you and the i in the united in the, the previous line i'm going to tell you how we will remain free right mm -hmm. so it's sort of just dangling the other one i wanted to point out is the one in the very last uh excuse me the penultimate stanza which is a fancy word for second to last stanza i hope i never forget your voice and all the love you gave me right i think that's really important because and I have this fear myself when you're very far apart from someone or they've died or, you know, time is passing and you don't hear their voice anymore. Mm -hmm. It actually is quite a haunting thing. And like for me myself, you know, I've had many people die in my life and I'll immediately like almost like push myself to remember the sound of their voice. Right. And voice is very much connected to this idea of love. And love is an act of remembrance for those who've passed and what their voices sound like. It literally, you know, and metaphorically keeps their voice alive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then we get to, I hope I never forget all that you've taught me. It's just quite heartbreaking in this beautiful way that the person that the people rather that we lose, they do keep on living in our brains and our memories. They're very much alive. And I know that I've had dreams. I hear you not only in my dreams. This is how this poem begins. It's kind of terrible when you're dreaming about someone and in the dream they're alive and then you wake up and you realize 
they're not anymore. And I think that's really resonant in the the next two lines that follow in the first stanza, but all around me and every, and then there's a line break there, everything I see, I completely understand that. It's like the ghost of the person is imprinted on everything you see, you know, not maybe the exact image, but the feeling. And I think that's like what poetry does. It explains the unexplainable, right? Yeah. Um, why? Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No worries. Yeah. I was just going to chime in real quick and just say that third to last stanza, that's what I'm kind of drawn to when you talk about that in the very first line of that. Again, just complimenting the line breaks we get now that you're gone, I think. And just like, mm-hmm. if you, you know, kind of stop there at where that line break is, we kind of get that same idea where you're, that you were talking about the kind of like, you know, the feeling of someone not truly being gone and trying to keep them alive and, you know, keep their voice there and, you know, kind of seeing them just thinking about like what that line is saying is like why I really appreciate that line as well. And then from there you get, you know, the line break, I think about you all the time and it's hard the about you all the time and it's hard line break to keep my tears at bay again it's just kind of like we get these moments of like this person is there but they're not there and just kind of like battling these two feelings and there's also rhymes at the Mm -hmm. end of every sea free away bay and then we return to the e with i hope i never forget all that you've taught me but then the last line defies that and it just says the person's full name ryan hunter smith right and I like that it it's also implicitly saying like, this doesn't need to rhyme, this holds on its own, this fact and how powerful love is. And I find this to be a, a love poem for sure, but it's also just a poem about how, you know, we really don't let go of those we love mm-hmm. that really make that impact. Yeah, totally. And obviously we get that in the very beginning for Hunter and then we get them coming back with the very last line, I love you, Ryan Hunter Smith. But again, that really stood out to me as well, how the last stanza, which is just one line, I love you, Ryan Hunter Smith, breaks this rhyme that we see throughout in the other in the other stanzas and yeah it just because it's so straightforward and so emotionally packed like there is something about just breaking it that makes it feel like the right thing to do as a reader i'm like oh yeah that that break away from what you were doing and just focusing in on this name just uh, for me it just adds so much more emphasis to it yeah i i remember a, a long time ago too um early on i was very young but somebody a critic said to me you should never put names in poems and then what did I go into? You put some names in there yeah (laughs) yeah and I just think that again poetry is the one genre is it fact is it fiction is it nonfiction? is it memoir is it this no it's just poetry and it does all of these things and you can never say why exactly something works in poetry you just feel it I think and I feel that last line Mm -hmm. I love you Ryan Smith I feel the poet's it's like putting it out there. It's manifesting this into the world. And therefore, uh, oh, and I wanted to say, I completely forgot that when we speak of poets or writers or artists, usually we'll say things, even even after they pass, we'll say things like, you know, uh, not to use Hemingway as an example, but to for, for purposes, you know, Hemingway says that, right? Mm-hmm. Hemingway believed that, use present tense. Mm-hmm. And so in that way, I love you, Ryan Hunter Smith is a past present future continuous yes. it goes on and on and on mm-hmm. right 
Yeah. Yeah. The continuous is what's important about this poem. So the fact of how it presented it is like, you know, you're never going to be forgotten. That's just perfect. Yeah. We have one poem left for you to read. It is called The Swarm of Bees Taste the Honey. Would you mind reading that one? I would love to. And by the way, I have a big bias towards bees. Uh I just think they are top. (laughs) So this is The Swarm of Bees Taste the Honey. No one will ever know what it's been like to lose you, but the cardinal in your window is still singing your favorite song, saying I'm wrong. The fresh smell of cut grass and rain soothes my soul, but the swarm of bees that chase me Say this pain I feel will never get old. I hear your laughing. I feel your touch. I close my eyes to hold tight to the things I see because I miss you so much. It hurts. It feels like I can't breathe. But if I trust God, I'll see you again. I believe. No one knows what it's been like to lose you. I know we all live to die. This much is true, but still. That that ending that just is just yeah. left open. Oh, it's so good. This this film actually made me a little weepy mm-hmm. the first time I read it. I there's there's so many beautiful things here. The cardinal in your window. I love that image so much because, you know, usually when you're looking out a window. you know in the city there's so much gray Mm -hmm. and concrete and there's some green there's some green but the cardinal especially if it's the male cardinal is red it's like this bright red Mm -hmm. you know and there's this brazenness this boldness the cardinal in your window is still singing right and i love that i love your favorite song line break and then an m dash saying i'm wrong and for me this poet feels like they're not wanting to feel this pain, mm-hmm. but they're feeling this pain no matter what, right? Because of memory, that this pain I feel will never get old because I hear you laugh. Yes. I feel your touch, right? Because of these things, it hurts. It feels like I can't breathe, right? So it's all about what it means to even take, I would say it would be to take the dare to love someone, mm-hmm. knowing that life is, is not forever, right? When you love someone, you're basically saying, I will love this person, even though it's not forever, right? But if I trust God, I'll see you again. I believe. There's a line break between again and I believe, and then there's a stanza break. And that I believe is indented twice, and it's sort of dangling, Mm -hmm. right? In the way that I think all belief is also a gamble. It's a dare, right? And then we return to the original line. It's broken now. No one knows what it's been like, line break, to lose you. And then there's the admittance. I know we all live to die. This much is true. But then like you were saying, Aaron, but still, that last line is two words. It's short. And it draws so much attention to itself while also being kind of quiet. Right? That to me is also, again, defiance. Mm -hmm. Right? That this poet is going to go on to love again. And not only that, like there's almost like a confidence being built up in here. Like we, yeah. So it's just like, they're going to love again, but even part of that, you know, like is building themselves, like they're going to feel comfortable in the place where they can love again. is like, yeah, part of it for me as well. 
Yeah, I mean, it really is. This poem is a lot about faith, mm-hmm. right? And and I laughed earlier when you said that because I think about poetry just doesn't offer hope. Mm-hmm. It, it, this is really quite extraordinary. It it makes it real mm. in a way that you know I I've been thinking a lot about. There's there's a lot of infighting right now in the physics community between what is real and what is not, right? And what we can prove and what we can't prove. The world of the large, which is classical mechanics, and the world of the small, which is quantum mechanics. And I think, you know, poetry, it just defies so many rules. It defies the arrow of time. It defies logic, but it's also all true. And this poem to me says, but if I trust God, I'll see you again. I believe, yes, it's about God, but it's also making this trust real, Mm -hmm. right? not just on the page. Uh, I love that quote. Poetry doesn't offer hope. It makes it real. Wow. Such a powerful thing to think about. I want to take a second to just praise the title of this poem. (laughs) So our class, yeah, our classrooms, you know, are quick, unfortunately, because we, you know, just the nature of getting into a jail and spending time um, with several different, you know, tanks and, you know, getting through everyone. So, you know, it's often that, you know, when people read our poems on here, they're left untitled because they haven't had the time to, you know, put in the effort or the the thought into it as much as they would like. But this one, yeah, you know, this came out of one classroom setting with an amazing title, The Swarm of Bees Taste the Honey. You just know reading that title that you're going to have an amazing poem come after it. I, I love it, too, because it's playful. But it's also quite eye-catching, right? The swarm of bees Mm -hmm. taste the honey. Not a swarm of bees taste honey. It's the swarm of bees taste the honey. Mm -hmm. It reminds me very much of like a book title, honestly. definitely. So hopefully hopefully one day we'll see books from all your poets here. But that would make a great book title. I'm definitely going to have to recommend that when I'm back in the classroom and I see them. Because, yeah, you're right. That would make a great book title. Please do. That is all the poems we have. And I just want to thank you again for sitting down with us today. Like it was such a treat talking with you and hearing your thoughts on their work and sharing a bit of your history with writing and with poetry. And thank you so much. Thank you. And I just want to close in saying, you know, I know sometimes there can feel like there's no hope or others have decided your path for you. I I sincerely do believe that there's always a way. It might not always be the easiest. It might not always be the simplest to understand, but there's always another way. And I've, I've learned that as a person who deals with illness, who's, you know, uh, who, who's just had, I've had a, you know, I I can say it. I've had, I've had a, a rough life. There's always a way, you know, there is. And so with whatever you put your faith in, whether it's God or Jesus or poetry, whatever it is, even if it's doubt, just tap into that. Don't, don't ignore it. You know, I went through my own period of doubt. I'm not quite sure I'm fully out of it, but the one thing I'm willing to bet on is poetry. Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. that's the one thing I'm willing to bet on. Thank you so much for that. I want to thank Rosebud Benoni for sitting down with me today. I also want to thank the incarcerated folks in our program that shared their work with us, as well as the San Marcos Arts Commission and Humanities Texas for making this project possible. A special thank you to our sound engineer, Alex Lyon, and graphics designer, Jules Tunnell. Until next time.